Hello, students. My name is Mike Estefan, and I thank you for joining me today on today's episode of the EM Clerkship Podcast. Today's episode is going to be focused on the emergent hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, that is, preeclampsia, eclampsia, and HELP syndrome. But before we begin, just a quick word from our sponsors over at Pearson Rabbits. Pearson Rabbits is my own personal disability insurance broker. They helped me secure true own occupation disability insurance, which is a must-have for specialties like emergency medicine, where we are defined by our abilities to perform emergent life-saving procedures. Don't just go with any old disability insurance. You need to make sure it is true own occupation disability insurance. And Pearson Rabbits will help you do just that without trying to oversell you on policies that won't actually protect you. They specifically specialize in working with healthcare providers like you and me and will get you protected against catastrophe. Don't wait until it's too late. Check out Pearson Rabbits at www.pearsonrabbits.com and schedule a consultation appointment today. Don't forget to mention EM Clerkship if you do. And now, back to the episode. There are three hypertensive disorders of pregnancy that you need to be able to recognize in the ED. They are all sort of similar and sort of exist on a spectrum. Preeclampsia, eclampsia, and HELP syndrome. We'll start by talking about these disorders in general and why they are bad. We'll then briefly cover the definitions and then move on to the workup followed by treatment. We'll then summarize the rest of the episode and then end the episode by answering a couple listener questions that were emailed in. These hypertensive disorders of pregnancy are all thought to be related to an abnormal placenta. Lots of theories exist, but from what I can find, it seems that chronic placental ischemia or hypoperfusion is often, as a result, various cytokines, vasodilators, as well as vasoconstrictors are all released, leading to some of the adverse effects we see. It can lead to leaky capillaries, causing cerebral edema, pulmonary edema, and hepatic edema. It can also lead to vasospasm, causing decreased perfusion to livers and kidneys and subsequent necrosis. Hemolysis is also a possibility. Ultimately, this leads to significant morbidity and mortality in pregnant women. And usually, this is due to either cerebral edema or cerebral hemorrhage, pulmonary edema, renal failure, hepatic failure, hemolysis with subsequent DIC, or even placental abruption. Now, there are a lot of technicalities when it comes to definitions. There's preeclampsia, preeclampsia with severe features, eclampsia, HELP syndrome, the list goes on and on. We're not going to explicitly define each one, as you're not on your OBGYN rotation, and frankly, the management in the ER is about the same. The goal of this episode is for you to be able to recognize their presence and treat them appropriately. So the general definition that I use for preeclampsia is new onset hypertension after 20 weeks gestational age with either proteinuria or evidence of end organ dysfunction. End organ dysfunction has quite the broad definition here, but in general includes thrombocytopenia, transaminitis, acute kidney injury, headache with visual changes especially, persistent right upper quadrant pain that is not attributed to an alternative diagnosis, or pulmonary edema. If preeclampsia progresses to causing a seizure, we call it eclampsia. HELP syndrome, 
which stands for hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets, is a severe subtype of preeclampsia with a worse prognosis. Let's talk about the recognition of these conditions and the workup. Any pregnant patient beyond 20 weeks gestational age with a blood pressure greater than 140 systolic or greater than 90 diastolic, I personally will work up for preeclampsia. And like in Maddie's case, you can't forget about the postpartum patients too. Most cases of postpartum preeclampsia occur in the first week after birth, but it can develop up to six weeks after delivery. And again, generally, you have to be beyond 20 weeks gestational age to be diagnosed with preeclampsia. In very rare scenarios where a patient has a molar pregnancy, sometimes they can develop preeclampsia earlier than 20 weeks, but in general, 20 weeks to six weeks postpartum is your time window. Chief complaints of visual changes or severe headache that doesn't get better with Tylenol or right upper quadrant abdominal pain should certainly make you at least think about one of these hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And I'll be completely honest, this one was a new one for me when I was preparing to record this episode. Non-dependent edema, so edema of the face or the hands, not the legs, is actually suggestive of the endothelial dysfunction that we see with preeclampsia and can be a hallmark of preeclampsia, sometimes even before the other symptoms manifest. Now let's talk workup. You're going to want labs and a urinalysis on these patients. And specifically, you will at the very least always want to check a CBC, a BMP, LFTs, and a urinalysis. If you're concerned about hemolysis or DIC, you can also add on coags, fibrinogen, D-dimer, LDH, and haptoglobin, but I don't do this all the time. Sometimes you're going to want to check a chest x-ray, a right upper quadrant ultrasound, or a head CT. And again, this depends on their symptoms. So let's go through this in detail. The purpose of the CBC is specifically to assess for thrombocytopenia or anemia from hemolysis. And remember, if hemolysis is present, often you will see schistocytes on the smear. The BMP is to assess for acute kidney injury. The LFTs are to assess for transaminitis or an elevated bilirubin level in the setting of hemolysis. The LDH and haptoglobin is also helpful to recognize hemolysis. Coags, fibrinogen, and sometimes even a D-dimer is helpful in recognizing early DIC. The purpose of the urinalysis is to assess for proteinuria. Now, if you suspect pulmonary edema, like you hear rails on exam or the patient's complaining of shortness of breath, go ahead, get a chest x-ray. If you're worried about cerebral edema or intracranial hemorrhage, like if the patient is having severe headache or they're having blurry vision, a CT head may be helpful. If the patient has right upper quadrant pain, I would definitely get a right upper quadrant ultrasound for two reasons. Number one, it still very well could be cholecystitis or any other gallbladder disorder, especially in the setting of pregnancy. And then number two, occasionally preeclamptic patients will develop something called a subcapsular hemorrhage in their liver, meaning their liver literally bleeds. And then sometimes the capsule can rupture, leading to hemoperitoneum. All right, let's move on to treatment. Treatment here is a multi-pronged approach, which includes giving magnesium for seizure prophylaxis, treating hypertension, and if the symptoms are severe enough and the patient is crashing, ultimately the treatment of choice is immediate delivery of the fetus and placenta if possible. 
Now let's be real. You are not going to be making the decision to induce and immediately deliver the fetus. That is OB's job. But you will have to temporize and stabilize these patients and get them to an OB alive. So let's start by talking about magnesium. It reduces mortality in preeclampsia and helps prevent seizures. Once you've made your diagnosis of preeclampsia, typically the move is to give 4 to 6 grams of magnesium IV over 20 to 30 minutes, and then that is followed by a continuous infusion of 1 gram an hour. Now, there is some nuance here. There are contraindications to high-dose magnesium, which include the presence of heart block, as well as severe hypocalcemia. You also have to monitor for magnesium toxicity, which can cause respiratory failure or heart block. We tend to monitor this by checking reflexes. Areflexia usually precedes the respiratory failure, so stop giving magnesium if your patient loses their reflexes or they develop heart block. If your patient does develop magnesium toxicity, does anyone know the treatment off the top of their head? The treatment is calcium gluconate, typically 1 to 2 grams IV. Now I want to talk through a couple hypothetical scenarios here. What if the patient arrives to the ER actively seizing without an IV? What do you do if you can't get IV access in this patient who is seizing? Typically, the move here is to give magnesium intramuscularly, and we give 5 grams of intramuscular magnesium into each buttocks for a total of 10 grams. And obviously, I would also give benzos at the same time. Usually, if I'm giving IM benzos, I'm giving Versed. So personally, I would use 10 milligrams of IM Versed as well. All right, another scenario. Let's say you diagnose preeclampsia in a patient. You're being a great doctor. You already gave them 6 grams of IV magnesium, but they begin seizing in front of you. What do you do? Do you give more magnesium? And typically, from what I found, the answer is yes. Another 2-4 to four gram bolus of magnesium as well as your benzo of choice to break the seizure. But what if the patient continues to seize and they go into status epilepticus and you fail to break the seizure with benzos and magnesium? This tells me that something bad is going on. Secure that airway fast and get that patient over to CT. This is almost always going to be either bad cerebral edema or some kind of intracranial hemorrhage. Okay, let's move on to treating the hypertension. The goal here is about a 20% reduction in blood pressure within the first couple hours, and then ultimately your goal is to get the patient's blood pressure into the low 100s, but again, hopefully the patient is out of your ER by that time. There are a couple options you have that are safe in pregnancy. Labetalol, hydralazine, and nicardipine. I typically use labetalol for IV push and nicardipine for IV infusions. Now, personally, I never use hydralazine. The clinical response is pretty darn unpredictable and varies from patient to patient. And I know, I know this is totally anecdotal, but I have personally seen a colleague accidentally overshoot blood pressure correction with a single dose of IV hydralazine, actually resulting in an iatrogenic stroke. All right, let's summarize. The hypertensive disorders of pregnancy that you need to be able to recognize include preeclampsia, eclampsia, and HELP syndrome. You should consider these diagnoses in any patient more than 20 weeks gestational age or up to six weeks postpartum 
who present with a blood pressure greater than 140 over 90. You're going to need to work these patients up for evidence of end organ dysfunction. Symptom-wise, this tends to mean headache refractory to Tylenol, blurry vision, seizures, right upper quadrant pain without an alternative diagnosis, and sometimes shortness of breath. Testing-wise, you're looking for hemolysis, thrombocytopenia, proteinuria, acute kidney injury, transaminitis, cerebral edema, pulmonary edema, DIC, or hepatic hemorrhage. You typically want to order, at a minimum, CBC, BMP, LFTs, and urinalysis. Occasionally, I will also order DIC labs, including coags, fibrinogen, and D-dimer, as well as hemolysis labs, which include LDH and haptoglobin. You may sometimes need to order a chest x-ray or a head CT or a right upper quadrant ultrasound, depending on the patient's symptoms. Treatment in the ED includes seizure prophylaxis and antihypertensive therapy. Typically, we give 4 to 6 grams IV magnesium over 20 minutes as a loading dose, followed by 1 gram an hour infusion for maintenance. Look out for signs of toxicity from the magnesium, including heart block, areflexia, or respiratory failure. Calcium gluconate is the treatment for hypermagnesemia. You may also need to give benzos on top of the magnesium if the patient is actively seizing. Seizures that are non-responsive to magnesium and benzos are bad and usually mean the patient has increased intracranial pressure from either intracranial hemorrhage or cerebral edema. You also need to control the patient's blood pressure with a goal of 20% reduction in the first couple hours. I typically use labetalol if it's going to be a one-time dose kind of thing, and nicardipine if I think I'm going to need a titratable infusion. I personally avoid hydralazine given the variable clinical response, but that's a decision you can make on your own. And finally, the ultimate treatment, getting the patient to an OBGYN to deliver the baby if the patient is sick and crashing. This episode's questions were emailed by one of our listeners, Eliana. Her question was, in a postpartum patient who is hypertensive with a seizure, do we automatically assume and diagnose this as eclampsia, or would this still warrant workup of alternative seizure disorders? I will start by acknowledging that most patients who are seizing are also hypertensive, which certainly makes this difficult. There's also some nuance to this that makes there no one-size-fits-all answer. But I would say in general, I would call this eclampsia until proven otherwise, while simultaneously working up alternative causes of the seizure, such as electrolyte abnormalities, infectious processes, medication or drug-related causes, and central neurologic causes. The potential harm in giving one of these patients 4 to 6 grams of IV magnesium is pretty low, and the mortality benefit if this is indeed eclampsia is significant. So, in my personal opinion, I think the benefits outweigh the risks here. Regarding treatment with antihypertensives, I think it depends on the case itself. Let's say the patient is 5 weeks postpartum, their blood pressure is 143 over 92 after they stop seizing, and they've returned to baseline after a single seizure, I'll probably wait for labs to confirm the diagnosis before dropping their blood pressure. However, let's say the patient is 48 or 72 hours postpartum, their blood pressure is 180 over 115 after they've stopped seizing, or they continue to have multiple seizures back-to-back and remain hypertensive between each, 
I would probably give the antihypertensive early on in the course of the treatment before labs have come back. And that's all I have for you guys today. Thanks again to our listeners for tuning in. And as always, feel free to email me with any questions, comments, or feedback. My email is mike at emclerkship.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, Pearson Rabbits. And until next time, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.